Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. Um, finally, 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 the website is up. Go to thesamplehour.com. Um, I'm going to be slowly uploading all the old content up there. I got the first four episodes, and then I'm going to start posting new episodes along with old episodes, but they'll stay in the correct order, which doesn't really matter to you, but it does matter to me. Um, on this episode, I want to say a special thanks to my girlfriend, and I don't want to sound cheesy, but, um, you know, a new focus, guys, when I did the whole 30 and everything, that was a big reason because of her. She really helped me kind of change my life, start focusing on the correct food to eat, and I didn't really give her enough credit in the episode I did with Charles Hugh Smith about uh, uh, Maslow's Triangle and that I did with Charles Hugh Smith. So thank you so much. Um, she also pointed me in this direction with this guest, uh, of this guest, I'm sorry. So I heard this guest on Rob Wolf's podcast, um, The Paleo Solution, which if you guys don't listen to, there's some great episodes. It's a great podcast. Um, but uh, so Nina Teicholz wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Bacon, Meat, and Cheese belong in a healthy diet. Um, it was 2014's book of the year by The Economist, top 10 nonfiction of 2014 by The Wall Street Journal, most memorable healthcare book of 2014 by Forbes.com, a best food book of 2014 by Mother Jones, and best book of 2014 by The Kirkus Reviews. Um, go to her website, bigfatsurprise.com. Follow her on Twitter, which is just at bigfatsurprise. Uh, this episode was great. Uh, Nina and I go over her book. We kind of hit quick points, but you guys really need to buy her book. So go to her website. You can buy the book from there. You can also order it on Amazon. Um, it's a great book. So I'm releasing this podcast on the old feed as well. But if you have the old feed um, until I'm going to keep releasing them out at the same time on the on the website and the, the old talk shoe feed. But pretty soon, the talk shoe feed is going to be going away. So it's still going to be there, but I'm going to stop posting new content to it. So um, just keep on the look. I'll tell you when the last episode is going to be. Still trying to figure out if I can reroute things through iTunes. I know I can change it up on Stitcher and everywhere else, but iTunes is kind of tricky. So I might have to just create a new iTunes feed. Um, so just for that business, but, uh, this is a great podcast. Uh, Nina's book is, is, is super fascinating guys. I strongly recommend you buy it. So, um, I really appreciate you guys listening and I hope you guys enjoy the show. Gentlemen, to another episode of the Sample Hour. I'm your host, Drew Sample. Today is a very, uh, we have a very special guest. So, uh, somebody who, um, as you know, just based on previous podcasts, my new focus on my own personal fitness and nutrition, um, something that I uh, want to say a special thanks to the girlfriend for pointing me in this direction. Um, but uh, I, I'm happy to be joined by the author of the book, The Big Fat Surprise. 
uh, why butter, meat, and cheese cheese belong in a healthy diet. Uh, <laughs> my guest, Nina Teicholz. How are you doing today, Nina? Hi, Drew. I'm well. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. Um, you know, uh, for anybody that that doesn't know i i first uh, heard nina on rob wolf's podcast which is a really good podcast but if you go to nina's website bigfatsurprise.com um there's a lot of great media of 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 nina there's you did a tedx talk as well um and uh i think you know i think something that your book and and especially everybody buy nina's book but you know something about your book that's been really uh just really kind of like resonated with me is the amount of of so so the story is you know saturated fat is not bad um so do you want to give a quick intro of what your book's about actually Nina? sorry about yeah that. so um my book came out last may and it's basically the first book that really the first publication anywhere that really makes the case that saturated fats the fats in meat cheese butter dairy eggs and the primary dietary culprit of the last 50 years are not, after all, bad for health. Um, it goes through all the different arguments and explains the history, and, um, and it shows that these fats really have been unfairly demonized. Um, and it's a wild and interesting tour through that history because it's just so counterintuitive. I mean, I was a vegetarian myself for 25 years and I couldn't, you know, I avoided fat like everybody else. I thought it made me fat, gave me heart disease. And um, so it took me nine years. I'm an investigative journalist. I spent, I spent almost nine years reading all the nutrition science and really digging deeply into this topic. Um, you know, understanding what happened, how did we come to believe that saturated fats were bad for health? And then what was the result of that? What were the unintended consequences of, of us cutting those foods and, and fats out of our lives? So, yeah, it's, it's a great book. And something that I really like about your book, um, especially for me, like I'm a big, you know, I'm a big advocate of people actually, you know, reading the citations of anything that they read, any study that they read, and then reading those studies. And like, you have so many, um, you have so many notes in the book of where you got your information from and you, you show sources. And it's clear that you've, you've read all these studies that were done that supposedly prove that saturated fats were bad. And it's, it's really interesting to see like, uh, we, we were talking a little bit before the show um, about another book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And like something in that book is talked about like is how the, the aspect of humanism is kind of instilled in a lot of science. Um, and one person in particular, uh, Ansel Keys, was like this, this charismatic figure that really kind of pushed this, this way of living on all of us. Um, if you so uh, and that that was pretty interesting, just in the aspect of of how it, you know he created like uh, this dogma and the the American and really pushed for the American Heart Association to to adopt this low carb diet. Um, would you want to do you want to uh, expand a little bit about upon that? Yeah. So the way that we got started on this idea that saturated fats and, and also cholesterol were bad for health is that in the 1950s, there was a panic in the United States about the rising tide of heart disease. It had come from pretty much out of nowhere in the early 1900s to become the number one killer, especially of 
middle-aged men, men in their prime. President Eisenhower himself had a heart attack in 1955 and was out of the Oval Office for 10 days. So this was very much front and center of everybody's attention. And there was one scientist um, named Ansel Keys, a pathologist at the University of Minnesota, who came up with the idea that it was saturated fats that caused heart disease. They would clog your arteries and give you a heart attack. And he was this very outsized, aggressive personality. He had an unshakable faith in his own ideas. And he was able to get that idea implanted into the American Heart Association. Then um, the premier group for providing nutrition guidance to prevent heart disease. And in 1961, they issued the very first nutrition guidelines anywhere in the world saying that we should all avoid saturated fat in, in, in meat, cheese, butter, dairy, eggs in order to avoid having a heart attack. And that was like the tiny acorn that grew into the oak tree of advice that we have today. Um, the science behind that first recommendation was incredibly soft. Um, I go into that a lot. I mean, I talk, I went back and looked at all that original science and it just never got any better, the science behind that hypothesis, behind Ansel Keys' hypothesis. But his idea really hardened into dogma and became institutionalized and the science just never caught up. But, um, but we've been living with his idea for 50 years now. And, you know, the last five years or so, we have started to see scientists go back, um, as I have done and, and, and re analyze all that original data. And that's why we've started to see headlines about saturated fat saying, Oh, you know what, you know what, a number of scientists, including some from Harvard and Cambridge and the University of Berkeley, um, at University of California, Berkeley, all concluding that the original science does not actually show that saturated fats cause heart disease. You know, meaning we have needlessly and perhaps to our detriment been avoiding those foods for all these years. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. Uh, one thing, like for me personally, just just in kind of my like journey of fitness and changing up my diet was, you know, we we are herbivores. We're not necessarily uh, um, we're not we're not herbivores. We're omnivores, and and so like the the idea that meat is bad for us when when like you know we have canine teeth and we, you know our bodies are designed to to consume meat. It's, it's just kind of like a weird thing how we've all kind of been tricked into thinking that that this is this is what's really healthy for us. And something else that I thought was interesting in your book, from the sound of it, it like Ansel Keys didn't necessarily even and his people didn't necessarily stick to this diet. Just kind of like their, uh, I kind of just kind of got their impression just by like some of your interviews that you you had done with those uh, with the uh, with other people that helped Ansel with his studies. Um, do you know any more about that? Like, because it didn't seem like he was necessarily like really sticking to the diet. It was more of just something that he was like a message he was preaching. Well, you know, Ansel Keys himself had red meat several times a week and was quoted in Time magazine um, as saying, you know, that he ate that because nobody can live on mush. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the truth is Americans used to eat a lot more red meat than we do today, so that was just normal. I mean, 150 years ago, Americans ate three to four times more red meat than we do today. And it's it's kind of a myth that we used to have a diet that is based more on fruits and vegetables and grains. Um, you know, in, in the 1960s, when Ansel Keys came out with this hypothesis, Americans ate about 40% 
fat, 40% carbs, and 20% protein um, in terms of their calories. And when we, uh, when the entire nation went on the low-fat diet and we restricted, sat, it was just first saturated fats and then it became all fats. But over since 1960, we've shifted our calories now to away from fat. We've reduced that from from a little over 40% now to um, by about 10% less. And we've shift, the consequence has been that we've shifted up our carbohydrates. I mean, if you remember that big bottom slab of the USDA food pyramid, it was telling us to eat grains, rice, cereals, breads, and those foods are all based carbohydrate-based. So we've shifted, the low-fat diet is necessarily higher in carbohydrates. We've all shifted to having a higher carbohydrate diet. And it turns out that carbohydrates all become glucose in your bloodstream and trigger the release of insulin, which is like the king of all hormones for making you fat. And carbohydrates, excessive exposure to carbohydrates also provokes the kind of metabolic condition that leads to diabetes. So in shifting away from fat to carbohydrates, it seems that that has been at the root of what has um, provoked the obesity and diabetes crises in America. And that has been a terrible unintended consequence of cutting fat out of our diets. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, and uh, another thing that was interesting too, is the, uh, you know, the, the increase in cancer, um, or like some, some, some of the studies that, that kind of showed that like, if you have a low fat diet, you're, you have an increased chance of cancer. And then the, uh, the nutritionist who Bill Clinton was behind, uh, I can't forget how to say his name. Um, uh, what Dean Ornish. Yeah. Ornish. He died of cancer as well. No, no, no. He's still alive. Oh, he's still alive. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of somebody else that a different nutritionist. Uh, there's a lot he of, the, yeah, he was on the, he, Dean Ornish is sort of one of the, um, he's one of the promoters of the, the more or less a vegan diet. Okay. And, um, one of his people that he took care of was Steve Jobs, okay. who did die of cancer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. My, my apologies. There's so many, right. there's so many kind of figures of this dogma that kind of promote this message. And I, and I, my apologies, I got the two confused. There was another gentleman though, who I think it was like in the, the eighties. I can't, man, I wish I remembered his name. Um, but I know I looked him up and I was reading, reading your book and he had, he had a, uh, he also kind of had a diet. He had died of cancer as well. And I just think it's, it's just kind of interesting, um, because it's, it's, it's like these, you know, they, they have these, it's, it's almost like it's more of like for these scientists, like keys and, and everybody else, it's, it's more about for them, like their legacy than necessarily like helping people. Like, I think they do want to help people, but I think it's kind of like that balance of, you know, is this really, is, is are they preaching their message out of self-interest or is it more of, of do they, it's just kind of interesting. Like it, it's to, to me, it's uh, when I think about, uh, you know, the way science is kind of projected on society in the sense by like either like the government or any big institution that a lot of corporate money is thrown into. It's, it's, it's always to me more about like a money grab from different food companies, which you talk about in your book too, which specifically like, you know, the soy companies, like with the, the, uh, the advent of Crisco and margarine, um, and, and really how it, how it really started to come about in the sixties was 
food companies sending information to doctors and, and really trying to say this is actually healthy for you and doctors kind of going along with it. Um, do you want to, could you expand a little bit on that, Nina? Yeah. I mean, I think you know, the heart of what you're asking is, um, who's to blame and why, and why would, why would scientists, you know, launch themselves off on this erroneous hypothesis with so little, um, good science behind it. And I think that it is, a complicated answer to that question. I mean, there definitely, there were several elements. One of them was definitely that there was this sense of public health urgency and a need to give the public advice. You see that from the very beginning, that researchers, the American Heart Association, doctors, they don't want to have nothing to tell their patients. And so there was a rush to embrace an, an, an unproven hypothesis. Um, and the other factor, as you said, is that there was the hand of big industry in here from the very beginning. And that was basically um, the companies that made um, two things. One was cereal products, so who wanted to get Americans eating more cereals, which are carbohydrates, and, and also vegetable oil companies. Vegetable oils were introduced into the diet in the uh, early 1900s, before 1900 Americans cooked only with butter and lard. And then the vegetable oil companies started making Crisco, which is hardened vegetable oil, margarine, also hardened vegetable oil, and then just plain oils in bottles for salad dressings. And they were um, quite effective at um, getting those products, those are unsaturated fats, you know, getting those, getting um, influencing the American Heart Association from their very beginning. And so, you know, the advice to cut out saturated fats, um, if you cut out saturated fats, you eat unsaturated fats. So that advice benefited all those companies. Also, if you shift over to car, you know, away from fats to carbohydrates, that also benefited all of the, the big food companies making um, manufactured not just cereals, but cakes, cookies, crackers, all of that manufactured food industry. So the hand of big industry was was certainly involved in um, in helping solidify this this kind of bad hypothesis. But there's a third factor, which is just the institutionalization of a hypothesis. You know, when it became adopted by the the entire federal government. Um, which it was when the dietary guidelines began in 1980 and all the professional societies got on board. It's very hard to change course in, when um, a scientific hypothesis becomes institutionalized. You know, science is supposed to be self-doubting and change according to observations. That's one of the fundamental principles of, of doing good science is being responsive to changing observations institutions can't do that. They still can't do that today. I mean, they can't flip-flop on their publics. They don't want to lose public trust. They cannot reverse out of bad hypotheses. And so they're, they're not good at doing um, science. So, so there are all these different factors, you know, big food, the institutionalization of science, and, um, and then, um, you know, the, the desperate need to respond to urgent public health crises these are all playing a part in why this hypothesis has endured for so long. You know, you mentioned that why are the scientists doing it? Certainly, you know, Ansel Keys became famous. He was in the cover of Time magazine. Um, scientists, unfortunately, are, you know, their field is just as rife with ambition and politics as any other field. 
but I think, you know, in, in the course of my research, I, I really came to believe and still believe that those scientists, Keyes and his colleagues, truly believed what they were saying. I think they had just an unshakable faith in what they said and thought that they would be helping to cure Americans of disease. Um, but yeah, yeah, they had like a, I mean, the interesting thing though was they didn't, it was never like, but they would feel so threatened by anybody that, that actually brought some data to question them like man or, um, the other, the other scientist that, uh, was with the Inuit. Um, and we're, well, I think was man man was with the the Maasai, right? Correct. Yeah, George Mann was a University of Vanderbilt um, biologist who went off to study the Maasai warriors in Kenya, and found that they ate only milk, blood, and meat. That was their entire diet for the warrior class, and and also discovered they had he did electrocardiograms on four hundred of them and couldn't find any traces of heart disease. So you know that those findings flew in the face of Ansel Keys's hypothesis. And one of the things that Keyes and his colleagues did was to um, very aggressively silence their critics by um, by basically slandering them. I mean, there yeah. was literally name calling. Yeah, using and, uh, ad hominem yeah. attacks, like just just. I mean, it was it was a very fallacious approach to handling their opposition. Instead of like, okay, let's actually have like some honest debate here, and let's talk about science, and it. And it it like it, it it was it was interesting too because there was they would dismiss what they had to say and then anything in their own studies that they would find they would also immediately dismiss anything that didn't back what their belief was yeah i mean there really was a tight small group of um you know, until recently, mostly men, male researchers who dominated, they're what I call the nutrition aristocrats. And there's still a very small group of them today. And they really dominate the nutrition discussion in a very one-sided way, but they are effective in doing that. They control the um, the top positions at the National Institute of Health. They are on all the expert panels, um, the most important ones being the USDA Dietary Guidelines, the American Heart Association's Nutrition Committee. They um, sit on the editorial boards of all the most important nutrition journals. They fund, they sit on the, they review each other's articles. They, um, they're in charge of, of allocating research dollars. They're the ones who receive the research dollars to do the research. I mean, it's just, it's a very closed tight-knit group and um it's easy to exclude dissenting voices they literally just don't i mean this is still happening today which is that people who come out with contrary research um they literally their papers are just ignored they're not included in reviews they're not invited to expert panels they're not invited to conferences and so that's a very effective way of silencing the opposition now, have you personally experienced this? Because I know your book has probably shaken a lot of foundations of uh, a lot of the low-fat research, um, just because it brings light and attention to a lot of other studies. Like, it, has there anything that you've personally experienced from um, from the the low-fat community? Yes, I mean I, it's pretty astonishing. I, I have. I'm. I mean, I'm not surprised by this. You know, I, I have seen it. I've documented it. I've written about it in my book. But my book came out, and um, the reception is has been um, strikingly w distorted. In that, 
there are certain publications, you know, in the U.S. now, there's kind of a, a strong movement towards vegetarianism amongst, a, um, you know, a certain kind of progressive elite, which includes, um, you know, well, includes now, you know, the, um, the White House and um, the authors of the dietary guidelines are all talking about moving to a plant-based diet. The New York Times is very much behind that. And um, it's a and it's located more in kind of liberal centers like me. You know, I live in New York City and I grew up in Berkeley, California. Those are the epicenters of this move towards vegetarianism. But those leading thinkers and institutions have um, have ignored, have not responded to my book. Whereas, you know, and whereas it's gotten a tremendous amount of acclaim. I mean, it was named a best book of the year by the economist, the wall street journal, um, by, you know, Forbes, it got a lot of attention, but it has received a big side. There's still silence in a certain, um, portion, I think, of leading thinkers in nutrition who, who, uh, for whom this book creates a lot of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I know. So I, it's, uh, it's it's interesting um, to to see even like watching the interviews that you're on like people are some people are really just kind of tongue in cheek with you and like it's it's kind of interesting to see um, people really like they they want to be respectful because you're a guest but you can tell that they're not really buying into what you're saying and it, it's just kind of like there's so much in there's so much ingrained in people with uh, just history and history of you know low fat you should eat more fruits and vegetables. And it's, it's not necessarily, it, it's just kind of interesting. Like it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because it takes so much. There's so much kind of, I guess I would say programming in a sense of, 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 well, obviously low fat diets are, are, uh, are, are good for you. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's understandable. I mean, I'm, because, you know, I myself would have not believed any of this when I started off my research, you know, a decade ago, I had been a vegetarian for 25 years. And the idea that, fat wasn't bad for you or that, um, that a, a mainly plant based diet was not the healthiest. I mean, that was an alien idea. And all of us have this received wisdom because it's been, um, three generations now that have been raised on these ideas. So, you know, they just seem like common sense to us. Yeah. And- yeah. It's, it's almost like they've robbed us of our common sense when it comes to eating. Because even, even like just for me personally, like I cook everything at bacon grease now. Like I've, I've like shifted my diet so much. Um, and like, and I was already kind of on this path and then reading your, your book, it was like, oh wow. Okay. This is some nice affirming information. But even I used to cook everything in olive oil. I remember in like the early two thousands, olive oil was just, just kind of shoved down our throats. as like, oh, this is, this is so good for you because of the mono and such unsaturated fats and the omega sixes and omega threes. And, and now like when you read some counter research, it's like, okay, these really aren't that good for you. The polyunsaturated bonds are obviously it's not, it's not very stable. Um, and something else that I wanted to talk to you about, but I, I distracted myself was the spontaneous combustion of uniforms. That was the result of, of all these restaurants switching over to vegetable oils. Um, and I think it's 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 just really really fascinating. Like I, I think the uh, just the the overall um, just it, it's just kind of weird because like we were talking about like it's it's common sense to us to think that fat is bad for you, but in reality, like 
why are we putting things in our body that that make clothing just sponta- or spontaneously burn from in restaurants? Do you want to talk about that real quick? My apologies. Yeah, I mean that's truly uh, an amazing story, and it it has not received any publicity, and and is maybe in some ways some one of the things I'm most proud of that I did for my book, which is to stitch together all this research. I mean. The story is that when we got rid of saturated, when we moved away from butter, lard, tallow, I mean, McDonald's used to fry their French fries in tallow. We moved over to using vegetable oils for that frying. It used to be that the oils in all those major fast food restaurants were um, hydrogenated, which means, which is basically a way of stabilizing them because those oils have never been stable. It means that, you know, especially at high heats, they oxidize, they create you know, hundreds of oxidation products that are terrible for health and cause inflammation amongst uh, oxidized cholesterol, which is the kind that um, makes plaques unstable and break away. But hydrogenation solved that. It made them more stable, and it just rearranged some of the chemical bonds to make them more like uh, solid fat, which is, you know, what saturated fats are. Those are solid fats at room temperature. But when we decided to get rid of trans fats and get them out of the food supply, they became kind of you know our chief dietary culprit for um, and and I write about this a lot in my book. Um, and they're certainly not good for health. But now what we have as a result are all these trans-free oils in McDonald's, Burger King, every major restaurant, and all your you know local they're cheap oils. Um, they have the same problems that hydrogenation was meant to fix, which is that they are highly unstable. They oxidize very easily. They go rancid. They create these oxidation products. They're so volatile that um, they, the workers' uniforms would spontaneously combust in the back of trucks, taking them to be cleaned. And then they would they would cause fires in the dryer. And even after they had been cleaned, they would still have these combustion problems. And in the restaurants, they discovered um, this the problem of trans-free oils in in like two thousand seven eight when we tried to, they started shifting out of trans fats because um, the new trans-free oils would cause all these like shellac-like substances to build up on the walls um, and clog the fryer drains and that's all stuff that is we're also eating and is in our bodies and they had to create new cleaning solutions. Uh, in order, more powerful chemical cleaning solutions to to kind of to re- get the shellac off the walls and out of the drains, and so um, that's all very worrisome to me. I mean, we're on the verge, actually, of our government, the FDA, banning all of all trans fats in the entire food supply, and um, you know what we should do is just go back to tallow and lard, what we used to fry in again, stable, no oxidation products, um, and long time fats that we used to use, but because of the fear of saturated fats, we won't do that. And unfortunately that means we're going to have more and more of these trans free oils. Um, you know, there are solutions. The food industry has come up with ways of trying to make the oils a little more stable through other means, not by hydrogenation, but those are very expensive. They're not, they're still in short supply. Um, so yeah, it's Mc- just not a realistic solution. What does Mc- McDonald's use as some fancy blanket to, to keep it from oxidizing their oil? Didn't, I, I heard you say that. Yeah, it's before. a nitrogen blanket. Uh, yeah, so some of the big restaurants have figured out kind of high-tech solutions to these oxidation 
problems. And one of them is this um, a nitrogen blanket over the fryer, or they have these silicon beads that they put in the oil to try to soak up the oxidation products. Um, so ironically, you know, actually McDonald's French fries might be marginally more healthy than like your local mom and pop restaurant that is just, you know, not changing its oils frequently and doesn't have any of those, um, high tech solutions. Well, that's awesome. Well, I tell you what, Nina, we're, we're kind of coming up on the, on the 30 minutes here. So, uh, we wanted to keep it kind of at that. So how can people, uh, you know, if, if people want to subscribe to your information or if people want to follow your work, what's the best way for people to do that? So that's at the, the, the big fat surprise.com, which is my website. There are reviews and, um, and media and other stuff there. Um, so yeah, that's the best place to go. Thank you. Yeah, not a problem. So everybody go to Amazon or your local bookstore. I highly recommend that you buy Nina's book. It's an awesome book. Um, I was super excited to talk to Nina today. So was definitely a little bit nervous. So sorry about that, Nina. Really, really. Res- <laughs> I didn't notice, Drew. Not at all. <laughs> I really, I really respect your work, and in, 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 in a lot of ways, you know, you're you're kind of a hero to me, fighting the big industry. So I was, <laughs> I was really nervous to talk to you. So my apologies. I kind of got warmed up towards the end. Thank you for being a end. fellow foot soldier in this. We need all the help we can get. Well, I pr- and I'm glad you're letting them get the word out there. Oh, not a problem. And I, and I appreciate the time that you did give me today. So everybody. Again, go to her website. She also has a, uh, so it looks like you had a blog, but. um, Not really. I haven't launched that yet. Well, look for Nina's blog in the near future, maybe. Um, Is there anything else that you're working on right now that you want to promote before you go? Um, No, that's really it. I mean, I think if you sign up for my newsletter, if you want to on my website, I I do plan to start a newsletter and a blog. And and my next article is going to be about. how the questions about the vegan diet, um, what is the evidence base for the vegan diet? So, um, yeah, I'll just continue to be writing on this subject for a while. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. You're welcome. 